Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Silvatis podcast. Um, today, I've got Alan Williams, who is not just an osteopath. He is um, a Pilates instructor, a yoga instructor, and I'd say just a movement movement coach. How, how does that sound to you, Alan? That'll do. More of yeah. a, a movementologist. I like that. We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll have to invent a new title for you. Okay. So thank you so much for joining me today and welcome. Welcome. I'm really excited to talk to you because you've got such an array of experience, not just in the osteopathy field, but also in other movement modalities. And I really want to explore that with you today. But the first thing I want to do, uh, the first thing I want to ask you is you have a lot of titles to your name and you've done so much. How did you, what was your introduction to osteopathy? To be honest, my first introduction to osteopathy, I must have been maybe 12 or 13. And my mother used to go to an osteopath in London, an American trained osteopath who was also a medical doctor. Um, and I remember sitting there watching my first neck manipulation and hearing the sounds. And I remember sitting there with my feet turned out. I was, you know, so basically they were um, inverted. I was just a teenager, so my feet were in a terrible posture. And the osteopath looked at me and said, please don't sit like that. Please don't have your ankles like that. Because I, I sat up. So that was the first time I ever knew about osteopathy. Um, what got me interested in training was at the time I was living in Cardiff. And I was lecturing physical education and movement science, sports science. And I had an injury to my knee. So I went to the GP. Um, then I went to a private physiotherapist. I thought, hmm, this is interesting. But I didn't want to be a physiotherapist. So that sparked off my interest for osteopathy. And within about six months, I was at BCOM studying on crutches. Wow, that's quite a feat. Yeah. So I suddenly, suddenly got very interested in it, wrote to a couple of colleges, had a couple of interviews. And as soon as I walked through the door in BCOM, that was it. I didn't know how I was going to pay for it. I just made the decision. This was a place. And actually, the, uh, the finance landed on my lap. That's another story for later on. But yeah, so within six months, I was in London. And that's interesting because that's how we met. Because um, obviously, I was at BCom too. And you were one of my lecturers. Um, and now I've come full circle. Now we're sort of working alongside each other. Now we're colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's wild to think that BCom has such a rich history of the people who came before and, and now teach and, and the people who will come after that and continue that tradition. Yeah, I always find it um, quite disappointing really that when you go in the doors of BCom, you don't have these pictures of the Dennis Kylies, the Drysdales, um, the Stanley Leaf. I know there's a picture of Stanley Leaf, but it'd be nice to have present principles up, you know, pictures. So it actually makes it more personable, more familiar. So you're steeped in the history. Why not show it off? One of the things that I didn't realize when um, I was a student was your extensive teaching background, because it's not just in osteopathy, but as you said, it's in physical education as well. And you have been teaching for quite a while now. And I think for me, I definitely appreciated that whilst I was a student, I didn't realize how much work went into that because let's be honest, you, you, you and a lot of the other tutors made it look very easy. Um, 
but how has that sort of physical education aspect influenced how you're teaching now? Well, I mean, doing a PGCE is always helpful, you know, um, but teaching PE was particularly helpful because if you're teaching gymnastics in a gym with 30 kids on dangerous equipment, uh, or if you're in a swimming pool teaching swimming, which is a dangerous environment, or you're teaching athletics where some of these teenage boys have got a javelin in their hand with a sharp point, you know, you, you really quickly learn how to sort of um, have a good position to see what's going on and to have an eye on everybody. So it really does make you aware of all your surroundings and try to be aware of everyone in that environment. So, you know, when you get 30 or 20 or 25 students in a, in a lecture theater with osteopathy, it's a lot more easy to control than out on a rugby pitch or a swimming pool in a gym. So yeah, it's definitely helped. Little things like, you know, can you see everybody? Can everybody see you? Is anybody standing behind you doing this? You know, because uh, anything could happen really. I mean, anybody could lose focus and attention. So it's just trying to use common sense really, once it's pointed out to you. And did you always want to teach? Apparently, apparently. Um, I was just saying the other day, actually, that um, an uncle of mine, oh no, a cousin of my dad's, he told me once that he'd got a letter that I'd written to my grandmother, who was his mother's sister, saying that I always wanted to teach. And this is when I was really young. I don't remember any of this. Uh, I just followed what I loved doing and uh, went to PE college because I loved sport. And it just went from there. Yeah. And one of the things is that you've not just worked in the UK, but you've also worked in Sweden and taught in Sweden. Yes. What was that like for you? It was it was different and, and very uh, very enlightening because you know different societies have different ways of working. Um, I remember I was teaching in Stockholm and we had an Italian osteopath come to visit to observe, um, and he sat in on my lecture and observed me teaching the group, and there was only maybe maybe 15 in the class, I think it was second years or third years, and I was teaching. And halfway through, the, the Italian osteopath said, it's amazing how much control you have of the class. You know, if this was in Italy, everybody would be shouting out, throwing things, beer cans, everything. You know, they'd be screaming and shouting. And I said, well, it's, it's easy teaching Sweden because they're a more conservative, more reserved bunch. Um, so you really have to ask them the direct questions. Has it sunk in? Do you understand that? Because they don't necessarily offer whether they have or not. So cultural differences, yeah, makes a big difference. And what's that like in comparison to teaching in the UK then? We've got a lot more international, well, as you know, BCom is, is full of international students, which is great because it brings all the different flavors and uh, attitudes and emotions in. So it's actually really nice to have a mix um, which is good, which is really good because obviously some are more vocal than others, some are quiet, some, some are from, you know, it's different age groups, different backgrounds. Not everybody is familiar with palpating and touching bodies or, or being half naked all day long. Um, so yeah, it's different and, and, you know, every nationality brings something new and fresh, which is really good from my point of view because it, it does keep you on your toes because you may need to explain terms differently. You know, we, we stand up there and we present stuff and we assume that there's this understanding of language and of terms 
um, or of, if we use analogies, we've got to stop saying, oh, do they, if I use that image or that analogy, do they actually understand? Of course they don't. Because you know, if it's a British thing, how will they understand what I'm talking about? So you, you do have to expand your repertoire of being able to present stuff in many different ways, repeatedly, you know, because not everybody gets it the first time. And not everybody says if they don't. And the biggest thing is, you know, you can see a puzzling face, a puzzled face, and you think, please ask me that question, because I don't want to put you on the spot and ask you if, you if you've understood it. So it's like trying to say it a different way, and there's still a puzzled face. It's like, okay, so how can you then, so you have to be very inventive um, and creative sometimes to get someone to admit, to ask a question, because it might just be a really simple question, which is often the best question, because there's probably three or four others that want to ask the same question. They think, well, I should really know that. I, I dare say I don't know it. But they're the most valuable questions. Yeah. And for me, osteopathy is so hands-on. How much of the language integration, how much does language play a role for you when you when you teach or even when you're delivering a session? Yeah, well, with, with a practical session, it's it's I think it is important to remember that you know people do learn differently. Uh, you know this with your with your background, your with your skills. So you know, I may be I may be up there showing this fantastic technique. It rarely happens, but let's just say I'm showing this fantastic technique. I disagree. Okay, so I'm showing a technique and some students will see it and think, yes, I know exactly what to do. They'll understand it, they'll get it straight away. If I'm saying something of a very descriptive language, some people will latch on to, okay, I can understand what he's saying. Um, others, until they get their hands on and are directed with a tutor, put your hands there they'll get it that way so you can think you're up there doing this this great display and maybe two-thirds of the class hasn't sunk in not because of anything they're lacking but because i haven't maybe explained it by showing it describing it come up and palpate it and so on so you've really got to try and understand that people learn differently uh, different rates and just because someone takes three attempts at it or has to ask three questions or be told something three times. That's just the way it is. You know, you could take it very personally, thinking, oh, I haven't done it properly. Just, well, maybe you just need to do it in a different way, or phrase it differently, or show it from a different view, or get the student up, show me what you do. Okay, let's do it together. Put the hands there. So you do become creative. Yeah. It's a and constant challenge. Yeah, it's definitely challenging. And has your style evolved or changed over the years? I think, yeah, I think the more you do it, the more relaxed you become. Uh, and I think I was saying this year a few weeks back, uh, BCOM, when we had the chat in the corridor, it's, uh, you know, if, if you think you're up there and it's about you, then that's a stress. But if you're up there just delivering a message, because the students or the audience you're talking to, I mean, it doesn't really matter whether you're wearing a blue shirt, a red shirt, shaved, haven't shaved, whatever. You know, it's really about the message you're getting across, which is a message for them. So it's less about you. If you think it's about you, then you have to perform and you have to get everything perfect. Oh, first time and you make a mistake. It's like you don't sleep overnight. It's, like, it's not like that at all. It's like, it's the message. The important thing is the message is not about me. I'm just there speaking, showing, but it's not about me. That takes pressure off. 
So then you can relax more and then you can actually be yourself. Whatever that is. Yeah. And, and that's some a... people like it and some people won't like it, but that's all you can do. You can just be yourself. And actually when you're yourself, they get permission to be themselves. That's really that's interesting. That's my theory. Yeah, that's really interesting because often I'll sort of, when I'm up there teaching, I'll, I'll think of like things that you've said to me and things that, you know, Kritika or Lazarus or Dr. Wasa, and it's just, you, you almost, you don't want to channel somebody else, but you just piggyback of little things that everyone's told you. I thought, oh, that yeah. made sense for me. Absolutely. We all, we all steal things from other people. Yeah. Steal the good bit. Model, you know, use what works, um, but then sort of mold it into what works for you. Yeah. And so who were your influences when you were a student or even after, oh, after yeah. studying? Um, well, certainly from BCom, Dennis Kiley. Dennis Kiley is a name that everyone at BCom now as a student may have heard. Um, some of the tutors that have been there a while will have been taught by Dennis Kiley. I was taught by Dennis Kiley. Um, he really did epitomize not just osteopathy, not just naturopathy, but... Um, he lived his life the way he taught and the way he worked. And sadly, he's passed on now. But yeah, he had a huge influence. And many, Malaj, you know, Malaj has had a huge. Don't let him hear this. Because <laughs> I refuse to say, I didn't say that at all. But Malaj had a huge, huge influence on me. So many, Phil Beach, um, some of these names you might, might have heard. But yeah, some uh, big, big influences. But you don't, real, you don't often realize it when you're getting influenced. Because when you're there and these, these lecturers, these big names are there teaching you, you just take it for granted. And you complain about the carpet. Or you have these other things, these trivial things to complain about, and you don't actually realize the quality of the training you get until you leave. And then you suddenly realize, wow, I wish I'd asked more questions for that person. When I left, when I qualified, um, I think within the first year, or probably within the first two years of me being a new graduate in osteopathy, I used to travel back to London and pretend I had back pain to get treated by Dennis Kiley, the dean of the college, because he used to have his treatments. Part of it was from college. So I used to come down every maybe four or five months and book in to see him um, just to learn from him. And he knew what was going on. Of course he did. You know, so, uh, yeah. And just being treated by someone like that for 45 minutes is, wow, this makes sense now. He's, I mean, everybody who's been taught by Dennis Carley, uh, you know, the hands, they'll mention his hands, how soft, how big, how strong, how comforting, you know. Um, but yeah, if you, so I was very lucky, very, very lucky to be taught by him, to teach with him later on, which was amazing. You know, he could show you 35 treatments in five minutes, techniques, because he was just like an encyclopedia. Uh, fun, the fundamental techniques were just really performed in such a way that made sense, that made you think maybe one day I could emulate that. Yeah, there's many, many different teachers out, very different. Phil Beach, he's, now, he's, uh, he's in New Zealand now, he taught me, again, I taught with him. He had a very eclectic view on movement um, and osteopathy, so very unique thinking. Uh, I like the unique thinkers as well, the difference, you know, a different view on things. Because it would be easy to just train and perpetuate what you were taught. Um, I 
think the real key is to then bring your other experiences in and your interests in and perform it your way and then add add to the, the, the course constantly if you can if you're allowed to and if it's appropriate yeah and if it's positive so yeah so i've been very very fortunate yeah, because as a student, you you know you you hear these names. You don't necessarily know the the rich history of it because I only know Dennis Kylie from the Kylie Room, which is where we used to go and get dressed for clinic, yeah. and that was as much as I knew about him for a very very long time. And actually, listening to you feels like learning or relearning some of the history of osteopathy. Yeah, which and that is infused into the BCom approach. I mean, every college is good. Every college has got proud of their approach which they should be and every college has got so much positive um, uniqueness um, and i've taught in you know various colleges um, and they've all got a very strong ethos and so much positivity um, but obviously i'm close to beacon because being a student there and teaching there you get a, a better experience of the ethos and the, the flavor um, and it is very very strong even just the friendliness you know, I, inter- I watched Ivan's talk with you mm-hmm. and he says something very interesting about um, everybody's helping each other to succeed. It's like, isn't that common sense? But yeah, it is. It's very true. Yeah, because often... And it's also really nice to be able to now teach with younger graduates, people that have just qualified because it's like, wow, yeah, hadn't thought of that before. It brings a newness. It brings fresh blood into things. They may not have the years of experience, but they have a fresh approach and they have opinions and they can back it up with science. And uh, so again, it's, it's really good to have that constant evolution going. You don't just want to be taught by people from a certain age group or a certain period of their training. You want to be exposed to the whole range. So that's good. That's interesting because as a, a new lecturer, I suppose, it's still weird to call myself a lecturer. Um, you often think, you know, you're standing alongside these people like you and, and Kritika and Oliver that I teach with. And you're thinking, gosh, these people have so much to give. And but think, so do you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. But you think they've been this product of all these different experiences and you in a similar way that you go back and you went back and got treated by Dennis Kiley I just wanted to come back and just hang out with all of you and just have these conversations because this is what excites me how is it different now being the other side um I get access to the staff room so that's and the biscuits biscuits. it's very weird and wonderful um (laughs) I think it's just more being more at ease. Um, I know suddenly for me coming back was just this natural progression, but I know for a lot of other people, you know, they're very, you know, by the end of the the degree, you're tired and, you know, you're fatigued out and you're happy to move away and move um, onto something else or somewhere else. But for me, BCom was very much that safe space. Um, and that comfortable space. So for me, coming back felt very natural. Me too. Yeah. Me too. And at the end of four years there, I wasn't tired. Okay. I was like, okay, I'm ready. I think, but yeah, let's go for it. So no, I wasn't, I wasn't exhausted by the court. There was a lot on it, obviously, but it wasn't like, I can't wait to get away. Mm. In fact, uh, 
I stayed away maybe for six years, five years before I came back to teach. Okay. Yeah. And that was mid, late 90s, mid, mid late 90s. But yeah, so I'd had a bit of experience before I came back to teach. Uh, but everybody's got experience to bring, you know, from different walks of life, which is good because it makes it real then. You know, it's not just repeating what you've been taught. It's like you bring your life experiences and your experience with, you know, your medical um, psychology. I mean, how great is that to have that background and that experience and that, that um, positivity and difference to present to students? And I, don't, and I don't see it as lecturing. I see it as teaching. What's the difference for you then? You see, I could stand up there and give a lecture. I could put a PowerPoint up, really nice pictures, this, 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 da, 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 da. And to me, a lecture is like presenting. They can take it or leave it. But teaching is like, okay, to me, with my background in PE and in teaching, it's like, if, you, if you're going to teach, it's like, okay, you want to make sure that you set the stage so that the other people in that room, at the end of that session, they've learned something. They've not just acquired information. They've not just stored more, um, more knowledge. It's like, do they understand what we've been talking about? Could you go home and, and talk to your partner or your friends about what you've just learned? Have you understood any of it? So has there been an educational gain in either understanding or being able to perform something better? So in an OT class, my approach is, okay, come in. What are you having problems with? Why haven't, what is it? Why do you think you're having a problem with that technique? Have you ever thought about it? Okay, you need to work on that. Da, da, da. So get an idea from several students. What is it they need? And you've got your plan. You've got your plan of what you want to do. But then you sort of adjust it so that you cover what they need. So that at the end of that session, I just haven't shown a technique. It's just, I want the student to know, has it made a difference? Even if it's they've learned something about why they couldn't do it before, that's a gain. If they've learned something about why they haven't been added to before, that's an even better gain. And if they've actually experienced, you know, I did this differently and I got a different result, that's an educational gain. So if the students leave the room at the end of the session and they're no better off than when they came in, it's like, well, the message hasn't got across or maybe you need to adjust it next time. So to me, lecturing may be just presenting something, presenting a paper, presenting your thoughts. Um, but teaching is, is, is to get that gain that they can do something or they can understand something better than before because of the experience of the session. Mm. And how much of that- Completely misguided. <laughs> no, it's it sounds- It's worked so far, so. <laughs> Well, yeah, practice what you preach, right? But how much of that is a two-way sort of dyadic relationship and how much of it is going just, because that's what it sounds like when you talk. It sounds like, you know, you're, you're imparting this, this knowledge, you're teaching, but you're also getting something back in return. Yeah, uh, and it, it gives me a real kick to see someone come up and do a technique better than they did it before as a result of something. Ah. <gasps> You know, not everybody's going to get this great aha moment in a lecture, but someone's going to be able to, hopefully, most of the class will get something which makes them think about doing something different. And then, you know, it, it really is nice to see students then volunteer to come up. It's a bit different now with, with uh, the gloves and the masks, etc. But, 
you know, pre-COVID, you know, it's really interesting to see how students change quite quickly to feel comfortable to come up and show a mistake. How quickly do you learn if you feel comfortable to come up and show the way you do it and then get help? Okay, because that then spreads. I was going to say like a virus, but that's not the word. Really. It spreads around the rest of the class. And okay, so it wasn't that bad, was it? You know, so they come up and they show what they can do. Good, bad, different. You know, it's never bad. It's just maybe different. You know, I mean, why would you expect it to be perfect? You wouldn't. But the quicker you're willing to show your mistakes in a comfortable environment, the quicker you can actually progress and do it differently, which gives you enormous confidence then of actually doing those techniques on patients when you get into clinic. Yeah. And I remember you always used to ask me really challenging, interesting questions. Well, I was very curious. Yeah, which is great because it gets me then thinking, wow, yeah, have I even considered that before? Um, which is fresh and good. And speaking of clinic, I remember one of the one of my favorite memories of clinic, um, not just with you, but just ever was, you know, you, you, I certainly struggled in the beginning of clinic third year I think it was third year and because there's a lot going on there's a lot of stimulation you've got you know people watching you've got the, the the tutor in the room the patient who's looking at you like you're the expert in the room and you have no idea what's going on really um and I remember you I remember being very flustered in my approach and when I was in your tutor group I remember you just asked me to slow everything down and you told me if you do anything in that clinic session do three things but do them well. And that to me has stuck ever since. So even not just in clinic, but even when I'm in, in practice now, I just think do three things. Or even two. Well, don't change this on me now. No, sorry, three, three. <laughs> Got to be three. It's, it's, you know, I, think because, I think because there are so many techniques, there are so many variations of techniques. You know, you look through osteopathic technique books and there's so many captions and pictures, but maybe five of them are, the, are five variations of the one fundamental technique. So in fact, you can actually get rid of half of the book and just have the fundamental techniques because um, they've all got variations, but you've got so many different techniques. You know, the danger might be, I've got to use all of them all of the time with every patient. So it then becomes like a, a box checking exercise to do your soft tissue, do your mobilizations, do your NMT, do your MET, do your traction, this, 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 this. Uh, maybe you're throwing an H HVT, you know, da, da, da. but it's like, no, it's like, well, what does the patient need? You know, because you, you're delving into a, 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 a nervous system. Someone has this nervous system with all their sensory receptors and their motor responses. And that's not even going into emotions and thoughts and feelings and past history and baggage and stuff like that. So the less you do, it gives you a lot more time to actually focus on how you do it and how the patient responds to it. Because as you know, patients will respond differently to different practitioners. They'll respond differently to you on different days, depending on what's going on in their lives. So yeah, just slow. I mean, what's the rush? Slow down. And you know, I think the worst thing to think is I'm going to come out of college and going to get every patient better in three weeks. Yeah. It actually takes four weeks. <laughs> So it's like every patient is different and it's, it's having the confidence in your own ability and your clinical decision-making to decide, you know, today I'm just going to do those three things and see how it goes. 
because you're actually giving the patient more that way because you're allowing their body to respond how we will respond. And you really don't know, even with many years of experience, if you've just seen a patient for the first time, you don't know, got an idea how they're going to respond. You don't really know exactly how they can respond until they come back the next time. So it's constantly, it's, it's continually uh, forever a learning experience because people are different. And you're different on different days. So you're taking your stuff to the clinic room too. So if you've had a bad day, it's not going to be great for your patients, is it? You've got to learn to put that aside and still be um, empty enough of your stuff to actually deal with their stuff. Yeah. And so if there are sort of, uh, if there are any new graduates or even final year students listening to this or watching this, what would be the one or what would be the, the thing that you'd say for them to develop or, or encourage or anything that they could just, use? I think just be open, you know, uh, with a, with the subject like osteopathy, often you'll get a mix of students, a mix of backgrounds, and maybe you'll get students that have had their own businesses. They may have been successful in other manual medicine modalities. Um, so in a sense, they've got their predetermined skills and career and experience and prejudices and preferences that they bring in with them. I think it's a really useful skill that whatever your experience, whether you're straight from school or whether you are um, doing osteopathy as a progression from something else you do, say massage or sports therapist or acupuncture, whatever, or GP, medical doctor, to actually accept, okay, let's just put that aside for the time being. I can always dip into it for the time being. Let's embrace the new osteopathic philosophy and just embrace and delve into that and not let the other stuff prevent you from having the open mind to accept everything and maybe realize they've got a point. This is good. Because our, our previous stuff can always hold us back if we let it, if we stay there and just, just pass time doing osteopathy whilst we're still hanging on to and bringing the other stuff with us. It's always there, it's not gonna go away. But while you're at BCOM, just embracing it and learn it and accept it and challenge it and question it, but question it from an open mind, not from, well, that disagrees with what I've learned before. Okay, it may disagree, but why do you disagree with it now? And that's not easy for some people to let go. Yeah, and that serves a purpose in a way. You hold on to things that you know and you operate within maybe a paradigm because that's your comfort zone or that's just what you've been told and that's what you've learned. But then to shift and grow that, that's the, that's the hard bit. That's the interesting bit, though. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you've just described a typical patient. Because patients come with their predetermined stuff, particularly about exercise and movement or back pain. They've got this paradigm they're constantly running and believing, which can hold them back. Um, so yeah, you know, we've got to get them to be open to our input too, and make them realize why, you know, we can possibly help them. Why should they stop doing that exercise? why should they supplant it or change it to something else so we've got to get them on their side but we've got to get them to let go of their ha bad habits i remember once last was it last year or the year before big i was teaching a group 
and I was teaching with Tom, and Tom knew what I was doing because it was obvious to me and Tom. Because so the start of the class, we got the class to, uh, as you know, everybody comes into a lecture. What do they do? They go and sit where they always sit. It's just ingrained in them. That's their chair. That's their position. So they go and sit in the same same positions. So the first thing I did was right. Can you move to a different place? So they picked up their bags and moved to a different place. And then when they got there, I said, right, can you move to another place? So they got up again and the comments were coming. The resistance was there. You know, there was complaints and why are we doing this? And it was really irritating some people. When they got, and I'd done like that, let's go back to the first place. So we got them all to go back and sit in the first place again. By this time, you know, there was a couple of sort of heated comments and resistance. And I simply explained to them, because the whole point then was, how are you going to change the habits in the patient that they may have actually movement or pain or movement patterns they've developed over years? And you think you're going to go straight in, give them an exercise, a bit of treatment, and you've changed all their habits. You know, in this group, they were arguing and resisting, just moving seats, which was no effort whatsoever. So it was just to highlight how resistant someone can be to change a habit. Now, if I'd explained to them why we were doing that at the start, they probably wouldn't have been resistant because they were, oh, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. But out of the blue, you know, if we don't explain to patients what we're trying to do about habits and posture and movement, etc., and exercise uh, and lifting techniques, why would they change if we're not educating them or explaining or taking them on board as to this is the reason for it all? Otherwise, you just get resistance. We wanted to change a bad habit. We wanted to stop doing the lifting technique that way. Well, why are they going to stop doing it if they've been doing it for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, unless you give them reason to an explanation how to. So yeah, interesting patients, how they can change their, their worldview in a sense, how they perceive the world, how they perceive their pain, how they perceive their movement or lack of movement. And that to me is all the psychology behind it. At least given my background, it just feels so integrated. Okay. Um, I'll take your word for it because you know about psychology. <laughs> but how does it that make sense doesn't it yeah absolutely we're a, mind, we're a mind and a body we're not just a physical being walking around you know there's emotions and, and i work a lot with exercise and movements with patients and some of the stuff that's stopping them moving well is physical and some of the stuff is not physical and if it's an emotional problem a deep-seated emotional issue which is affecting their embodiment their their movement capacity and control you can give them an exercise but unless you get to what's underneath that exercise for them preventing them doing it a different way you're just going to be uh, disappointed so how much of that do you incorporate in your treatments or i suppose my question is what is your ethos or your direction when you treat a patient Initially, you know, when they come in, you, you, you want to find out what they want, why they're, why they're there. They've got back pain. Okay, so, so, you've got back pain. Tell me more. Ah, oh, it's stopping me from doing it. Ah, okay, now we're getting oh, I don't want to end up, oh. So when you explore their pain and their symptoms, because we've got the time to, uh, when we ask them about how it affects them, you know, what is it stopping you doing? You know, often we say, you know, what makes it worse, what makes it better? But a nice question is, what does it stop you doing? Or what do you feel you can't do now that you, that you want to do? 
then it's like you open the floodgates and then you get the the emotions and the real reason why they're coming because most people can can deal with pain up to a point but when it stops them living their life or doing what they want to do freely okay then they come in the room so i think getting onto a basis of what's going on here you know then it's like okay now maybe we can maybe maybe we can help that's why you don't move well yeah because we have to move freely through life but if someone can't move freely out of bed or from one room to another that's going to affect how they move through life so you know i see movement of the physical body just yeah. the same as moving through life some people move through it so easily and fluidly and they deal with challenges they get the same challenges it's just that they have more freedom of expression of how to deal with those challenges whereas if someone is stuck in their body and everyone's got this disownership this disembodiment of helplessness you know yeah that's physical but it's also emotional and it's going to affect the whole of their lives sooner or later whether they're consciously aware of it or not so it is a psychological um, job too because we've got to get on the inside of that person to find out what makes them tick and what's stopping making them tick and if they're interested in movement and exercise it's like if that patient or that person doesn't get inside that movement, if they don't get that movement inside, you know about this with Pilates, if they don't get that movement in their body, then it's just exercise. It's not movement, it's exercise. And exercise can then be seen as purely an outcome. Got to do three sets of 10. Got to get to the gym three times this week. Got to do 40 minutes of treadmill. John Lennon. John Lennon wrote a fantastic song called Beautiful Boy. And the lyrics in that song, there's a part which says, life is what happens to us when we're busy making other plans. Now, if you apply that to exercise, it's like, well, movement is what happens to us when we're busy exercising. So you can do the three sets of 10 to achieve the goal. But if you've not been aware of repetition one, two, three, four, five, 29, 30, if you're not aware of how you're doing what you're doing, then it has less meaning you have less awareness of it because a lot of people you'll give them an exercise to do maybe or someone will give a handout of an exercise they'll do the exercise they'll go home but they'll do it their way they'll do the three sets of ten they won't not hold their breath or they'll you know they'll read do not hold breath good they'll focus on do not hold breath but they'll still do their movement the way they do it unless you teach them how you want to do it if you teach them the way you want them to do it and focus on how they're doing each part of the repetition, then it means something to them because then they can begin to have a control on how, how to adjust their body and to make changes. But if someone's doing, um, someone's doing a leg press in the gym and you give them an exercise, I want you to do the leg press or a squat, they'll take what they do in the leg press, good or bad, and do it in their squat or their leap or their deadlift. So they'll still transfer their maybe inappropriate or painful movement patterns and take it to a different exercise. So in many ways, you can use exercise to perpetuate a problem unless you step in and find out the way they do it. Is that the way you want them to do it or not according with what you found as an osteopath to be the problem? So movement can be completely missed out on in an exercise. Imagine if you're teaching someone Pilates 
and you give them a handout of it. So go away and do this. And they'll come back to show you. You say, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. That's the way you might like to do it, but no, that's not, that's not. So to actually get that movement inside their body, you've got to teach them and cue them in different ways so they appreciate the proprioceptive awareness and how they move their body so that they're aware of how they do it. They own their body. They have body agency of how to control it. And then they can make changes and they can realize, okay, that's why I had a sticking point there. That's why I've never been able to do that exercise. That makes sense now because it's first-hand direct experience. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I feel like I should be taking notes. It makes notes. sense to you because you've got a movement background. Well, yeah, and, and that's, the, that's the one thing that we do share because um, I know you are Pilates trained and yoga trained. I'm not yoga trained myself. And so my question to that is, is how much of, well, firstly, how did you get into those modalities? Okay. Uh, yoga, I probably started on about 17 or 18. I found a book. It's still the best book I've ever read on yoga. Uh, called Yoga and Health by Yuzudian and Hake. Um, so I read the book. I read the book. Oh, I don't even know how many countless times. I've got so many different versions of it. Um, but yeah, I started practicing yoga. It helped me. It actually helped me at that time in my life because I was playing a lot of um, competitive sport, a lot of contact sport. So the, the physicality of that impact of body contact sport and rugby. Um, in a sense, I needed something to balance out. So yoga helped me with that, um, and the breathing, etc., the energy control. So yoga's been there throughout. I've done a lot of it. I mean, there's times when I haven't done it for ages. You know? um, and then I trained finally in America, um, yoga instructor. Pilates, I got into Pilates. I was working at a big orthopedic and osteopathic clinic the mid mid to late 90s late 90s i think and um the owner of one of the big pilates organizations in the world wanted to start up in the uk and our clinic we had a lot of practitioners there and one of the physios wanted to learn pilates so he convinced the owner of the clinic if we bought all this equipment because there's a space not basically if we did, if you did, if you bought all this equipment, then this organization could actually come here and train us and uh, run courses from here. That's basically what happened. So then I got involved in it and I trained with the, with the, uh, the head of the organization and it just went from there. Then I started teaching with them later on. I assisted with them and then uh, I became principal educator for some of the courses too. So it just went from there. So that's how I got into it. Just purely interest, you know, a pure selfish interest in wanting to do it for me because it just made a lot of sense. And I'd heard about it for, for years before, you know, when there was like three books available on it. Now there's like 3,000 books available. Everybody's got books on Pilates these days. So, yeah, that's what got me into it. And it made so much sense in how it could actually work with osteopathy. Because I still, you know, still when, you know, still when I get a patient in, an osteopathic patient, I'm still assessing their movement. So a lot of what we do is osteopaths. It's movement-based. Whether we consciously think of it or not, we can focus a lot on pain. We can focus a lot on dysfunction and pathology and this and that. Um, but a lot of it is assessing movement. Active standing observation, active range of motion, passive range of motion. 
what we do in treatment. What are we doing with the mobility test? What are we doing with the mobilization? What are we doing with HVT? What are we doing with MET? A lot of it, at the end of the day, comes back to that simple concept of movement and getting the patient to move more freely and express themselves physically through movement. And the lack of movement certainly affects people's pain tolerance. It's not like if you exercise, you'll never get back pain because that's not true. You know, if you exercise, you'll live longer. It's just not true. You know, there's evidence for and against it, but certainly if you move well, you cope better. And again, in my experience with patients, the patients that move well recover much better, much more quickly than patients who don't move well, which is interesting. There's a, there's a, there's a, there's a research study there for someone waiting to be done. I think I'm all out of the dissertation now. Yeah, me too. Me too. And that's that's really interesting because obviously I see parallels in in the way people move. And for me, my exercise sort of rehabilitation has always been Pilates based because that's that's what I know. And whereas you know there were people on my course who were personal trainers, and that's that that was their approach, and that worked yeah. for them. Um, but I don't think I fully appreciated how to merge the two together. Because for me, when I was studying, it was very separate. You know, this is my osteopathy side. This is my Pilates side. And I remember coming to you and I thought, and I am thinking and asking, actually, I did ask this. I was like, well, how do I use what I do on the equipment, like the reformer, like the Cadillac? And how do I use my osteopathic side to help integrated and 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 encourage that movement or encourage that ease of movement because everyone can move however much or however limited it is everyone can move it's the ease of movement and that's what i find people come to me with it's like mm. well i can't do an extension exercise and i'm like okay well why and I, I remember picking this up from you. I was like, okay, so I have this, this client in Pilates, you know, we're doing extension exercise on the Cadillac with the roll down bar, the push through bar, sorry. And it was you, it was like, well, why don't you just place your hand and encourage, you know, that extension into the segment that feels a bit sticky. Which is probably what you wanted to do, but thought you shouldn't. Absolutely. You the two things separately. Absolutely. I didn't know how to into, and I probably still don't fully know how to integrate the two. Just imagine that you're reforming your Cadillac, your trapeze, your ladder barrel, your chair. That's just sort of replaced the treatment couch. So the patient's not on the treatment couch. The patient's actually on the reformer or the Cadillac. So it's like, okay, so now it's just a different type of couch. And you've got the skills in both professions to be able to marry them safely and appropriately. And interestingly, you know, if you... If you got a client in and said, right, um, just do 10 reps on that exercise, they would do the 10 reps. If you said, right, now just do this once, but really feel how you do this smoothly, it would be a different experience for them. Because even in a Pilates class, if it's like, right, let's get going and they do all these different exercises, they may still be concentrating on the exercise as an outcome of getting it done. And they're not aware of, like you say, the smoothness or the fluidity of every single repetition. Because once the nervous system does um, a faulty movement pattern and gets through it, it'll do another one. Even if it's a faulty movement pattern, they'll just do it again. Until there's reason for them to realize there's a different way. 
Now, if they're just doing 10 repetitions, they may be focused on the first two or three. Or if they're doing 15, that's a long way away, 15. So they rush through the first few. And the first, the last two may be really inappropriate, which the nervous system then remembers for the next time it starts. That's what it remembers. So unless you can do a, um, do three reps, do three perfect reps. Next time, do four perfect, perfectly aware reps. Build yourself up. If you do 10 perfectly aware ones, the 11th is not so good. Have a break, give it a few seconds, come back and do a perfect one again. So it is that that learning process of the patient's bodily experience, which is so important, then you can see gains dramatically, quickly, instead of someone just repeating the exercise the way you know you don't want them to do it. Yes, they've got there, but that's not what I meant. And that's not what the equipment is for. You know, the springs are there for, as you know, I'm talking to the converted here, you know, the springs are there for assistance or resistance. And, you know, it's not a torture chamber. You know, it's actually there to help you so that you can do that smooth movement without struggling through with your effort and your type A behavior forcing so much effort to get those reps done. Just relax and move, you know, breathe. And some people just don't breathe. Breathing is, I found breathing to be one of the biggest sticking points with most people's exercise when you assess them with back pain as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you go right back to the basics of, let's see how you breathe. Okay, let's work on your breathing for a while. Then let's get you moving. Or work on the breathing on the machines, you know, uh, whilst you're doing that first or second repetition. Don't wait to the 15th to work on the breathing. It's, okay, let's stop, let's go back, let's regress maybe a tiny bit and do it, do it differently. Because again, once the nervous system experiences, once the sensory motor nervous system and all the connections experiences a successful movement, it's like, okay, if I can do that, I'll do that again. There's no reason not to. Unless we have our intentions and our emotions and all our other baggage or experience forcing it to do it, to do it a different way. And that can be from a simple connotation of, well, exercise has got to be hard to be any good. I've got, to, I've got to work hard to get the benefit. Who do you know who does Pilates really well? Do they look like they're trying hard? Who do you know who can do a beautiful yoga posture? Do they look like they're trying hard? Does, does John McEnroe or uh, Roger Federer or Steffi Graf look like they're working hard? They're just working so efficiently that it's like poetry in motion because they're doing the basics and always have just repeatedly very, 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 very well over and over again focusing on form not on whether the ball went in the court or not agassi when he was young and training he'd be hitting the ball miles out of court he was never told that's wrong he was allowed to keep hitting keep hitting until the ball came closer and closer and closer to the court until it went exactly where he wanted so he's ingrained that movement pattern which then became so normal so natural and that's what we're trying to do with uh patients with movement based my approach is to get them doing whatever they're doing fluidly so that their body can express their physicality with much less effort and much more fun, much more joy. And that's, you've, you've just described me in the gym where I'm doing like maybe three sets of 12 deadlifts and I'm just praying for the last set to get it over and done with. Whereas 
in Pilates and you very succinctly just described, you know, Joseph Pilates approach and, and one of the principles was, was flow. And, and also he didn't have huge repetitions. You did like eight maybe, yeah. but you did them really well and really mindfully. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's part of the thing that's stressed a lot in Pilates is that mind connection. Um, it's not mindless movement. No. What did he call it? The art of controlology? Yes. To control how you do things. You know, he was very much a physical educationist. He stole stuff from martial arts. He stole stuff from gymnastics and dance. Um, yeah, it's, it's being comfortable with what you've got and how you use it, but always striving to get the maximum amount of joy with a minimum amount of, it sounds so, so, so idealistic, doesn't it? Get the most joy from the least effort. Well, you can do that from movement. You can do that from yoga. I remember in Sweden, I was teaching a yoga class and um, a female client came, uh, first, first lesson, first class, and standing and doing a warrior pose, she was having severe trouble coping. She was athletic looking, um, a lot of walking but she had uh, a problem breathing because her breathing was so haphazard, she left the class, she couldn't cope. And anyway, a little later, it turned out why, we found out why, because actually she was going through a very hard time in a marriage. She couldn't express herself for years. So that lack of expression, um, she then took to a yoga class and the breathing highlighted the fact that she couldn't express herself so she couldn't express the physicality in a relatively easy pose. wasn't ready. wasn't ready for it. Later on, she actually trained as a yoga teacher. But you know, sometimes we can try to change things. But if the issue is not ready to be dealt with, then we're not going to get anywhere. So forcing a pose, a posture on that person, would have been absolutely the wrong thing to do. It was the the emotional issue which was needing attention not a physical yoga class how interesting yeah it's almost like how, you know most most move, movement motion and emotion are so linked you know you see someone walking down finchie road from their body language you can tell if they're happy if they just won a lottery or if they're sad and you see someone else you know upright up here rather than down there you can tell it, and especially with your psychology, your psychology background, you'll be able to spot it. You know what's going on. You don't know what's going on, but you know there's something going on. Their posture is linked to their emotion somehow. It cannot not be. You know, if you've got new, news now that you, actually your degree was faulty, you haven't got your degree, your blood pressure would change, your heart rate would change, your whole posture would go into this, this fright. If you just got a phone call, ah, you just won 30,000 pounds. Your physiology would instantly change because of the thought or the emotion or what's going on. So to think that mind and body are not connected is a pretty sort of a dualist concept. It's just, how can that make sense? Now we can approach someone through their movement, we can approach someone through their breath, we can approach someone through their emotions. And that very much encapsulates what you can do in an osteopathic setting as well. Absolutely. And I'm seeing these connections. And one of the things you talked about just now was, was the joy of movement 
when you're doing you know a class or a one-to-one in a, in a yoga or a pilates session how do you bring that joy of movement into a treatment to an osteopathic treatment i think involving the patient in um I think that you know this sort of therapeutic relationship that it, that exists um, has to be one of trust, of honesty, um, and that's built up. Um, you can build up pretty quickly, or maybe even more slowly with other people. But once you've got that connection of honesty and trust and respect, the touch does something. You know, the physical touch in our profession almost gives the patient permission to open up, particularly. You know, we've got to be particularly careful with the abdomen and the neck and various areas and diaphragms because it can actually open up more than we uh, would expect. So you can get quite a cathartic um, experience going on if you're not prepared for that. So this touch does actually give someone the connection to open up. And as long as you're, you're listening and hearing and looking and seeing, you can read between the lines, you can ask further questions when needed, you can change your technique to be softer, more vigorous, or move somewhere else, if you're constantly picking up what's going on in that patient's body. Because what's going on in that patient's body is also going on in their mind, and what's going on in their mind will be affecting what's going on in their body. So once you've got that relaxed but professional connection going, and, and you're willing to take the time to listen through your hands to the body's response. You can find out whether the body wants you to do that or back off a bit. You know, um, you can touch a patient's neck and they'll burst into tears. It's, uh, it's, you get the, you know, you can get these weird, weird um, responses going on because of whatever's going on in their, their life. So yeah, it's, uh, I think you have to go with what comes up and have the confidence um, that you're trained well enough to be able to spot is this under my remit or is this above my pay grade so if you're there and something's going on it's like I'm just not qualified for this then you can back off a bit but then refer to the appropriate professionals so it's always been alert to can you help should you help do you have the skills to help or should you just listen just listen back off and listen and many times the patients actually come up with their own answers if you allow them to. And tissues under your hands will come up with relaxation and letting go if you do just those three techniques or two techniques instead of bombarding the body with 25 techniques where the body will shut down and, and it's retaliate because it's been attacked. It's just too much and over the top. If you give the space with your treatment to allow that patient's body to respond, sometimes you need to just wait and let it respond. Well, that comes from having the confidence to not have to do too much and just apparently sit there and wait. So it depends if you're, if, you know, if you have the view that, okay, I'm the osteopath, I've got to change things. Yeah, good luck with that. You're not, that's not your job. Your job is not to change things. Your job is to actually be there to assist the body changing if and when and with whatever you can do to assist the body to do that. Because if a patient's body doesn't want you to change it, you shouldn't even try to. Even if you know, yes, that joint needs to move better. But it's fighting you, fighting you, fighting you, saying, yeah, but I don't want to yet, for whatever reason. You've just got to have the confidence to step back and accept, I'm not going to get it better this week. 
coming a bit later on. Coming a bit later on. And that very much resonates with um, something that I was talking to about in another interview with um, Andy Mansfield. And I think the transition for me as a student was I've got to make this change. I've got to manipulate this joint or, you know, get this tissue to relax. And very much what what you're saying to me now is the way that mindset changed for me was actually I'm just going to do something to the body and let it respond and then just wait for it to respond. Cause often, especially when you've got a full list and you're busy and, and you know, everything's very timed, you just have to go in and get things done and then you're on to the next patient, but to actually sit there and wait, that's a hard thing to do, at least for me. Yeah. Yeah. It is taking the back seat and not feeling powerless. It's actually letting the body have the power to do what it needs to do. And sometimes that, that takes, uh, takes a while. And so what if you do very little, apparently very little in that treatment session? The one thing you did, which was maybe give the time for the patient to relax and get things off their chest. Maybe that's exactly the treatment plan they needed for that day. And you might be thinking, yeah, but I didn't do much. Well, maybe you didn't do much in quantity, but maybe what you did was exactly what was needed to allow that body to come back next week in a completely different state. Because you may be, an osteopath may be the only person the patient really unfolds to because of the time we've been and the physical touch. So yeah, yeah. it's an interesting, interesting profession. Yeah. And so my next question to you is, I mean, you know, I'm recently in the grand scheme of things graduated and, and I know from having conversations with, with people that I know and graduated with, you know, we can almost get very tired, not just physically, but emotionally. And so my question to you is how do you sustain that energy and that enthusiasm? Disciplined in that you don't, don't, um, take the patient home with you in a sense. Leave it in the room, leave the patient in the room, move on to the next one. Do what you can, do your utmost in the time that they're in the room. And if you need to read up on things and fair stuff, that's different, but going home and worrying about it, beating yourself up about it, you're gonna exhaust yourself. And so where do you derive your inspiration from in terms of energy, in terms of motivation, what do you do that helps you? I exercise a lot. I move a lot. Um, always have. Always have. If I don't, if I don't move or exercise during the day, I get a bit edgy. I feel as if I haven't had my time. Um, so yeah, I think you've got to be a bit selfish at times and put yourself in the, the structure of the day too, and not just devote all your time. To patients because if you don't look after yourself it's not like it's not a job that keeps you fit is it it can wear you out physically and mentally and emotionally particularly if you take the worries home with you so it's not a job that keeps you fit you've actually got to keep in a good calm safe place physically and mentally you've got to be happy you've got to look after your health you've got to look after your well-being otherwise what right have you got to help someone else you know it's going to be a struggle you may try but you've got to 
got to live health and well-being in all, in my view you've got to do your best to be healthy and to keep well in order to then spurt out advice or physically treat people you've got to you've got to be invested in it then i think you know whatever you do like i can teach a whole day at become and i don't feel tired at the end i can start at nine finish at seven i don't feel tired at seven because it's all fresh you know you've got all these different personalities coming in challenging you and and, uh, you can feed off that's good it's fresh it's new yeah but i think that's because i look after myself and uh, i'm very health conscious and i don't take stuff too seriously as you know you know it's like oh do it with a smile don't do it because otherwise you're going to end up worse than your patients and i think that's a conscious effort you know you've got to think if you make a mistake learn from it move on don't make the same mistake again don't beat yourself up because you made a mistake and no one you know when you considered you you considered yourself like a, a recent graduate in the grand scheme of things well so do i really when you think of how long it's been around and and how long manual medicine has been around i'm a new graduate like you i'm learning just like you just at a different stage along the path maybe but it's exactly the same yeah so yeah i think you've just got to keep fresh and uh, be grateful be appreciative um of whatever comes your way you know just like deal with it deal with it the best you can but the healthier you are the more move, the more you move physically you know certainly the better you are physically you know if you're more physically well i think you can cope with all the challenges in a better way unless you're using exercise as another stress so if you have to get to that gym five times this week that's a stress don't bother if you're plowing up the swimming pool because you hate swimming but you know swimming is good for you don't bother you know if you if you go running because you know running is good for you but you hate running don't run Walk the dog, dance, do some, do what you actually enjoy. So my approach with, with a lot of patients is, so what do you enjoy doing? Or what did you used to enjoy doing? Or what would you like to start? Oh, horse riding, right, let's use that. Or walking the dog, let's use that. Put a music on the room and dancing like crazy, let's use that. It's all movement. Like I say, it's the movement that's important, not the exercise. Some, some people grow up because they've had this sadistic PE teacher using press-ups as a punishment. So if a, if a, so if, so if, a, if a kid has been forced to do push-ups, which are fantastic, fantastic exercise for your whole body, if they've grown up with this notion that's a punishment, how keen are they going to be on to start doing press-ups? It's not going to happen because they've got that embodied sensation of, no, 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 my experience of press-ups is not good. So it's got to be something they enjoy for them to continue it and to be compliant. Otherwise, you're, you know, you've got to you've got to want them to do it for their reasons, not for yours. You may think, yeah, Pilates is brilliant, but they may not like Pilates. What do you like? I like Tai Chi. Fantastic, Jigong. Fantastic. Or they like heavy weight training, high intensity training. Great. Let's use that. But even with that, like you say, let's concentrate on the first rep of the deadlift then the second rep of the deadlift. And if you still feel that way on the 12th rep, do it the 12th rep. If you're losing it, stop. So your deadlifts become a joy rather than I've got to do them. I hate them, but I've got to do them. <laughs> because I know they're good, but I hate them, I've got to do them. It's a punishment. I'm going to, I'm going to force myself through it. 
And a lot of people do force them through exercise because they're told exercise is good, which it is. But I think the mindset and the mindfulness and the mind approach in why movement should be a joy, should be a tonic. Mm. It's not. Let's explore why not. Let's find a movement that is a tonic for you. Yeah. And one thing that definitely comes across is, is you're continually learning. It's never you reach this pinnacle and well, you know, you're done. It's, it's this continuous and relearning, I think. Yeah. And, and so my question to you then is, is where do you see yourself going in the next five or 10 years in terms of would be nice. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. To be honest, um, I'm not the world's best planner. I don't sit there with my five-year plan. I know what I'm going to have for lunch today. That's about the extent of my future planning, to be honest. So I've never been one to sit down. Maybe it's a fault of mine, you know. I'm sure it is. But I've never been one to set it out and think, right. It may be a big shortcoming of mine. But um, I tend to sort of follow my interests. I followed my interest with PE. I followed my interest with osteopathy. I followed my interest with yoga, with Pilates, with movement. So, you know, when I follow my interests, which isn't always easy um, because there's all this other perceptions from the external world that are telling you or giving their opinions. You know, sometimes it's hard to follow your interests because you don't know where it's going to go. But right, you've got to follow your interests, whether it's sport, exercise, music, whatever, um, or just socializing, you know, follow your interests and that step will lead you on to the next step. And I think if you know it's the wrong path, if you're honest with yourself, you know it's the wrong path. But ten, things with me tend to sort of slot into place if I just follow what I like doing in a good, in an honest sense, in a gut feeling, not what I think I should be doing. It's like, what do I feel is right for me? Yeah. Like Econ is a very, very easy place to teach in because it feels home to me. I've taught in other colleges. Um, it didn't feel like home. I was doing the same job. Students were great. Staff was great. But it's just like, it doesn't quite feel like home. It wasn't right for me. So, and it would have been wrong to have stayed there because that would not end in a good place in terms of job satisfaction or personal satisfaction. Um, so the career development hasn't really got much to do with it. It's just how do you feel at the place? And you either slot in and feel comfortable or it can be a challenge, you know. And stress. And I don't want it to be stress. So. And this is why we'll all drive miles to come back and teach a B. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do you teach? None of us are local. Why do you teach that? What's in it for you? On a um, I've always loved teaching whether it's, you know, started from the Pilates side and transitioned to the psychology and now, and now the OT, I've always enjoyed allowing this space for somebody else to receive that information, make it their own and, and discover it and not, and I love the distinction you make between lecturing and teaching because I hadn't formally thought about that. And that's why I asked but it's, it's allowing this, yeah, just giving something to somebody and just letting it sit with them. And they might not get it straight away. And I hope they don't get it straight away sometimes because I, I want see, them to. I see lecturing about me, but teaching about them. Mm. In my view of things, yeah. Yeah. 
I may be giving a lecture, but it's their learning if I'm teaching them. And like you say, you said something very, very sweet and it's like making it their own. It's like, yeah, if it's not their own, then it's not gonna work for them. So when you, the way you practice, I mean, the way you practice with patients and the way you are with your clients, they will come to you because it's you. Not because you're an osteopath or a psychologist, but come to you because it's Sylvan. And Sylvan does it Sylvan's way. Mm. And that's what they resonate with and that's what they connect with. And that's what will ultimately get results. Because there's not this disparity or disconnection or battle going on. Um, they're coming to you because it's you. And that's what excites me. It's, it's disco discovering, and I guess it's for everyone, discovering what is their way, what is their approach. And whilst it's exciting, it's really scary as well because you don't know. Yeah. And you're continually trying to figure it out or try something else and see what fits. They like life. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. It's like a continual process, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. You got it right, and then wham. Maybe I need to rethink that. Continual process. Absolutely. And so where do you see, so what would you like to see from the profession going forward? I'd like them to actually um, be a little more conscious of how good and how profound osteopathy can be, be proud of what it can do, whether or not any other profession likes it or not, it's really none of their business so you know if someone asks me what's the difference between osteopathy and chiropractic i'll tell them all about osteopathy because i'm not a chiropractor i can't talk about car i know about chiropractic but it's not really for me to fill them in with what chiropractic or physiotherapy or homeopathy i say i've got a great mate who's a chiropractor i'll give you his number he'll tell you all about chiropractic go and see him go and get treatment so I think the profession needs to be very proud of what it's doing and not buy into making changes for political gain or political acceptance, uh, not to turn into a fear-based profession. Um, so you know, the, the teaching is sound, and I think we've got to instill in our students that you know, the profession still needs certain techniques in safe, appropriate. The whole point of all of the techniques, soft tissue included, is there's a time and place. And we train you to realize the right time and the right place and when not to. And that can be the same with the soft tissue technique as to the more robust, seemingly robust direct techniques. It's not just certain techniques that could be fear-based. It's like, well, as soon as you put your hands on a patient, as soon as you advise hot and cold or an ice pack to someone, that could potentially be a risk. Someone's got a DVT in their calf and you give them hydrotherapy. Is that not a risk? You may not see soft tissue as a dangerous technique. They're all as dangerous and all as, as profound as each other, as long as you consider them in context of why are you doing that? What's going on in the patient? So I think we just, you know, osteopathy needs to be very proud what it can do, what it's done in the past, and evidence-based, yes, it's going to be evidence-based these days, so put more money and more opportunities into research institutions, encourage breadth of research, not just osteopathic, but also naturopathic, um, and just stick to trying to keep as much control of the profession within the profession 
not let it run away or be dragged away somewhere else. If you read between the lines. Absolutely. So, yeah, it is. It's no, uh, I think osteopaths in the past have suffered from this inferiority complex, right? which is particularly evident sometimes when you see students write a letter to a GP. It's like firmly, clearly state what you think, because you said it earlier. In fact, when that patient comes into you, even as a student, you are the expert in the room. And when you qualify, you will be the expert in the room. And when you write that letter to an insurance company or a medical insurance company, you are the expert. Act like it. You know, be proud that you've got the confidence to say in your clinical opinion, da 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 da. It is your clinical opinion, but you state clearly because of the way you're trained. It's not this, you know, you don't want to write a meek letter and, you know, so vague that it really shows you really know nothing about anything and you're just asking for help state what you found you may be asking for help and assistance but you state clearly what you found in a very clinically orientated professional manner yeah so it's getting over that mindset of stating what you do well and osteopaths do a lot of things well they're not cures for everybody but they do a lot of good um it's a very profound way of helping people as are other um, treatment modalities so i think we should be proud of that yeah, and what Nothing I hear just become another manual medicine mode. You know, there's, there's something which is which is very unique about osteopathy, which goes way, 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 way back, and it has very naturopathic roots when you think about it. Yeah, and what I hear Where do you is see yourself going in the next five, ten years. Then? I mean, I have a, a list of courses that I want to do, and equally a list of courses that I I want to wait to do. Okay. I think it's so easy to jump into the next course and, you know, and, and sort of bounce from one to the other without having that time to digest it, integrate it, actually use it. And so I'm just, I want to take, I want to be more patient with myself, I think, and give myself that time to develop and not have to know everything right now, because that's the, the pressure because, you know, somebody comes to you and I had a patient with a complex regional pain syndrome. And I was like, right, I don't, I don't know enough about this. So I did, I, I went and I read and I did my homework, but As I'm not expected it. to, yeah, I'm not expected to it. know everything. We still do it. Yeah. We still do it. Absolutely. And sometimes it is nice to, you know, use your patience as your textbook because you've read all the books, you've learned all the techniques. It's like, finally you've got these patients coming to you which are showing you so much if you're willing to just look and like you say beware i'm not sure what this is yet but i've got i don't know where to look but yeah but you know your patients will be your your texts your yeah textbook, your, your experience and even more fun when they don't present like the textbooks because then you're thinking well, I I no yeah no idea what's going on with you but let's figure it out yeah Absolutely. And you're trained to know that, yeah, okay, I can do this, I can do that. I can wait and I can go research or I can ask. And then I love what you're doing now with these podcasts. Uh, really well done with this because it's connecting people. You know, osteopathy in the past has been, could, you know, could have been seen as a very insular, segregated um, profession. So everything you're doing to connect people through these podcasts and to share information, I think it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Well done. 
it Thank gets you, people to open up and it gets people to share. And it's like, yeah, I learn from all the other lecturers I'm working with. You know, it's like, that's why the environment is so nice. I'm learning from them. Where else would I get that? You may Thank think you. I'm coming in to teach your students. I'm not. I'm really coming in just to learn from the other lecturers. <laughs> Thanks. There's a lot of experience there. And it doesn't matter whether you're more experienced or less experienced. It's different experience. Because we've all, we may have been in practice the same amount of time, but we've all had different experiences and different realms and different facets of osteopathy. So it's good to mix ideas, to see techniques. Um, critique has done some techniques. I think I've never seen them before. They look really good. Trained at a different, different college. So it's like, wow, yeah, that looks great. It's a great technique. Yeah. And, and that's the whole point of, of why I wanted to start this was because I've been, you know, exposed to so many great and smart people. And I thought, if really? I go into practice, I don't know any of them. Uh, I mean, you know, there have been a, there are few and far between, but, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's this dissemination of information that you don't necessarily always get when you're in well if you're in a practice on your own or if you're lucky to be in a practice with other people or other osteopaths or other even other practitioners types of practitioners and you don't um, often get that at other colleges either hmm. you know you do it some others but you know one particular toilet that, that doesn't happen yeah and so for me it's just let's you've got to make it happen you've got to make it like you're making these podcasts you've got to make it happen invite people in get them talking ask them the most challenging questions and interesting questions because you're like yeah we all need to know that we need to share and part of it is selfish part of it is i want to ask you about things that either i've not had the opportunity to ask or yep. the time to ask so let me ask it for myself and i think i did a um, another podcast with a nutritionist and it was just all this information i was like this made so much sense and why have i not asked these questions before yeah. Yeah. And so for me, this is a selfish endeavor. If people get anything from it, great. Right. But no, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. But, and I wanted to thank you because you are always this really calming presence um, in clinic. And so. Confusing me with someone else, sure. <laughs> <laughs> never, never. Um, so for me, whenever I was in your tutor group, I always thought, whatever happens, it's going to be okay. And you didn't always necessarily get that from everyone you know you you gel with certain people more than others and so forth but that's the one thing that always came across to me was this calming presence and even if I didn't know what I was doing it was going to be okay that's because I didn't know either <laughs> we're in the same boat it's the blind leading the blind <laughs> but I wanted to thank you so much thank you for inviting me yeah thank you for your time and thank you for just talking to all of us just about your experiences and sharing all this information that you have. And I'm sure we can go on for another three hours and not sure run out of things. I'm sure we could. We can see who's the first to drop. I mean, probably <laughs> me because I need to eat. Um. <laughs> all right, thank you for inviting me. And, uh, yeah.